0: This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to The Francis Effect for the fourth week of October 2017. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. Every couple of weeks we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, as always, it's great to see you. And with your spirit. (laughs) On today's episode, we're looking at three topics. We're going to start out with discussing the rising fears now of nuclear war with Korea, North Korea specifically, and what the Catholic position on nuclear war would be. Next, we'll look at Pope Francis's recent anti death penalty statements. And in our last segment of the show, we'll look at the situation with Harvey Weinstein and the issue of sexual harassment in general. We also have a special bonus segment for all of you friends of Frank. We'll be discussing some of the recent hate mail we've received. If you'd like to hear it, go to patreon.com francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. Before we get started, we also want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com.
1: Dan, how have you been this week? David, I have been very good, but as usual, very busy. Uh, I know it's the story of your life as well and, and many of our listeners. I just got in uh, late last night from the West Coast and uh, San Francisco, the Bay Area. What were you doing there? Many things, primarily not breathing in or trying not to breathe in the terrible uh, smoke and particle concentrations in the air. It's, it's a real disaster right now. I don't know when or what the situation will be by the time we air this podcast. But as of the time of this recording, there have been just devastating wildfires north of San Francisco and Northern California and, you know, Sonoma and Napa regions. And the wind has pushed the smoke from those forest fires, from those wildfires south and into the Bay Area. So it kind of looks like a permanent fog, you know, that San Francisco fog, but it's actually fire smoke. And it's very, very dangerous, uh, particularly for people who are sensitive you know, they have asthma or emphysema, or they might be uh, older or for young children and babies. So it was really striking to to land there. I, the, the real reason I was there, the primary reason was to give a, a lecture. But I arrived on Thursday afternoon, and as we were descending into San Francisco, you could see the smoke. You could see almost like a chimney effect, as if the mountains were chimneys and there were piles of smoke coming up over the ridges. So we keep them in our prayers and, and all those who are risking their lives to uh, help protect the safety of others. Uh, there have been many people, several dozen people who have died and hundreds and hundreds of people who have lost homes and have been injured and, and really dramatically affected. I, I met a few of those folks. And so certainly we keep them in prayer.
0: Absolutely. And and I mean, you're a long distance runner. And so breathing in particulate matter is, is not good for you either. Is that fair to say? It
1: is. I don't think I was adversely affected, so I can count my blessings. But I, I would say that I was looking forward to running while there these last few days and unfortunately was not able to do that. So it's, it's a minor thing. I don't even it's not even worth complaining about or acknowledging. I mean, again, it's it's uh, it's really a tragedy. How was your weekend? Well, uh, it was good. On Friday night,
0: I went to a cooking class with a friend from high school and his wife, and so my wife and I went and joined them, and he is a fan of Wiener schnitzel, and so we went to this class to learn how to cook good German Oktoberfest food, and at the end of it, after having spent two and a half hours cooking and drinking beer, we got a chance to sit down at this wonderful table and eat the meal that we had prepared, and it was... Delicious. (laughs) Delicious. <laughs> Does that involve smashing a lot of meat? Isn't that? <laughs> the meat do? was pre smashed, oh, actually. Oh, it was, oh. yeah. So you had to batter it. We, it we had so. to batter it and we had to drizzle dough through little holes to make spätzle and all that. Uh, I mean, it was just good, heavy, dense, doughy, meaty food. And then on Sunday, the Chicago Architecture Foundation has uh, an open house on one weekend in October every year. And we had a chance to go to the West Loop, which is a neighborhood of Chicago right uh, to the west of downtown, and sort of explore several buildings there. And so we went to a car museum, and my son and daughter got a chance to see some cars, and they were interested in that. And we went to the University of Illinois at Chicago to a, a new section of their library that they had built. We went to an amazing bed and breakfast that was a converted building that used to be the United Methodist Publishing House here in, in Chicago. And just it was a, just a really good day. And also to went to a place that builds sort of large-scale architectural models. So if you've ever walked past a, a, a building that is about to be built and they have a scale model of it, this was the place that does that. Oh, wow. So we got a chance to see, you know, everything, uh, an entire spectrum of, of life in the West Loop. And that's, I think, good, good for us just to get to know as new Chicagoans new neighborhoods and to see what kind of vitality is there and not just here in Hyde Park. So we had a really
1: good time. That's very cool. Nice. I, uh, that's something I've been very eager to learn about, uh, not necessarily very good at exercising. I don't get to explore the neighborhoods as much, but it is so cool. Uh, and being a, a, a lifelong East Coaster, I was unaware of Chicago's Neighborhoodism and, uh, and how neat it is. It's, it's really, really very cool. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah. And, and so I, uh, like you, we are looking forward
0: and we are too busy to oftentimes take advantage of the rich, the rich and wonderful diversity of opportunities that are here in the city. But, uh, uh hopefully sometime, uh, you can come along and be, uh, be a, a person to join us as a guest as our family goes out and, and, uh, and explores. You'd be most welcome. I, I would, I would love that. Excellent. Well, let's turn to our first topic. We're taping this in the context of several weeks of escalating tensions, mostly on Twitter, between the president of the United States and the leader of North Korea over North Korea's desire to have weapons of mass destruction. And I'm not, I'm not even sure, Dan, how to characterize this because at the same time, it feels so real and so surreal Having grown up in the 1980s with the fear of nuclear annihilation, I am uncomfortable with the fact that we are suddenly revisiting that whole mindset and that whole spirit of the times again. And I, yeah. I, I, I know you're a little younger than me, but I, I'd just be interested, first of all, just to get your take on, on what's going on and what you're seeing
1: yeah I think I think I share your uh, concern and uh, frustration and anxiety um, like like so many people I think so many people at least in their right mind if I if I can be so bold those who don't realize the dangers that we're talking about really need a wake-up call, so I encourage them to pay attention. so on the one hand, we're talking about North Korea and that's that's a clear and, and real threat although It gains and loses attention in the media coverage and in kind of the general population, depending on which, as you point out, tweets come out and which nicknames and insults are are thrown back and forth. But just over the last few days, we've also seen President Trump refuse to recertify the Iran deal, uh, the negotiations that were made on a multilateral level that has been adhered to. It has been confirmed by our partners, the Europeans, including partners in Russia and China on this matter. It seems like President Trump has no, absolutely no concept of what's at stake and what he's talking about. And so th- there are so many layers here, um, including running the risk of not only demolishing or, or, or pulling the strings apart and unraveling this agreement, which was, which was a landmark agreement and you know basically affecting what it is that that agreement was designed and has been preventing which is the accumulation of these weapons of mass destruction or the pursuit of creating them by Iran what's what's also disturbing is that this further erodes the credibility and legitimacy of of the United States in the uh, in the eyes of the of the global leaders all around the world and so if if we can't guarantee that we'll stand by commitments that we've made and treaties that we've you know, signed, then, you know, that's a big problem. The third thing that's an issue is that just on the Iran issue is that actually now Iran can go to Europe and to Russia and China and other, uh, you know, international actors, including, you know, maybe the General Assembly of the United Nations and say, well, now look, we're not the aggressors. We're not the ones breaking this treaty, breaking this agreement. It's the United States that's that's causing this mischief. They're stirring this up for no apparent reason. You've laid out the diplomatic problems, I think, Very
0: clearly. But there's another factor to this, and that is in the past few days, Donald Trump has also been reported to have said he looked at our current nuclear stockpile and he compared it to the nuclear stockpile we had in the 1980s. And he basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, yeah, I'd like it to be more like that, which is almost a tenfold increase in terms of the weapons that we have. Now, here's why that is problematic in terms of infrastructure. In the 1980s, when we produced that huge stockpile, we had an entire national security establishment that was consisting of several factories around the, the nation that were creating these different parts for bombs. You can look at Hanford, Washington, you can look at Oak Ridge, you can look at Los Alamos, and you can look at you can look at Rocky Flats. All of those were involved in creating components for this massive nuclear stockpile. Every place that you look. There's an environmental footprint. There's an entire, even though Hanford has been closed down, Rocky Flats has been closed down, there are sections of those geographic spaces that are still uninhabitable, not being able to be used, that have to be guarded for hundreds if not thousands of years. So we're talking about an environmental footprint that is a legacy of this. So first of all, if we were going to ramp up to that tenfold increase, we would have to recreate those kind of spaces again. Because right now we're doing basically maintenance of our nuclear stockpile, mostly through Los Alamos. And if we were to ramp that up again, we would have to recreate new factories, which means we'd either have to recreate more environmental devastation at these sites where they existed before, or we'd have to locate new sites that we were basically willing to X off the map. So there's not just the diplomatic, there's the environmental impact of any kind of ramping up of nuclear aggression or becoming a stronger, and I'm air quoting here, a stronger
1: nuclear power, given the fact that we're already the strongest nuclear power in the world. Right, and this is something that both Russia and the United States has, has come to terms with an agreement that we have been de-escalating and decreasing our our stockpiles. And so, uh, you know, furthermore, it's, it's, it's tempting our national adversaries. This is a national security concern. But maybe actually, in addition to the political, the environmental, it's, it's good to switch now to the moral topic. So given that, you know, the theme of our podcast is to consider things in light of our, our Catholic faith, our Catholic tradition, this raises a very interesting question, Right what is the Catholic response to all of this nuclear war talk? Is, there, is it justified? Is it something if the president or his advisors deem it in our best national interest? And right now, everybody seems to be, with the exception of President Trump, in agreement that it is not in our best interest to pursue this path. Nevertheless, let's say others uh, sign on. What is the Catholic response? Do we go along with this? And there are a couple points of consideration. One is the fact that any kind of military action to see whether it's morally justifiable has to go through a number of uh, considerations, kind of filters within the Catholic moral tradition under the heading of what's sometimes called just war theory. And so it's true that the Catholic Church teaches that sovereign nations have the right to defend their people, again, in order, as Gaudi Metspez makes clear, to, to promote the common good. And so there are defensive modes that are justifiable. However, There are a number of other criteria that have to be considered when stating whether or not military action, use of military force is justifiable. One of the key elements is, and and here I'll, I'll quote a summary of this, that the use of arms must not produce evils and disorders graver than the evil to be eliminated, and the power of modern means of destruction weighs very heavily in evaluating this condition. The legitimate defense by military force argument in the Just War Theory first of all, points to the fact that you cannot use disproportionate amount of uh, violence or harm relative to the threat at hand or the previous aggression. This was a big problem in World War II when the United States dropped two atomic bombs. You know, Because another consideration, too, for justifiable or legitimate military force is uh, the fact that everything is done as, as much as possible to limit or eliminate harm done to non-combatant bystanders. So that would be, you know, women, children, men, people who are not military combatants. And the problem with uh, nuclear weapons, atomic weapons in general, is that they're non-discriminatory and their force is completely destructive. So
0: if we were to think about how we as Catholics are called to respond are there any examples of Catholics who would be hawkish and who would be saying, yes, we want to escalate nuclear weapons, we like the idea of a first strike, is that even within the realm of Catholic imagination, or is this something that, that should and could be unimaginable to Catholics regardless of their, their take on the political spectrum?
1: The latter point is a better description of what Catholic teaching says and what the teaching, those who exercise teaching authority in the church, particularly uh, the bishops and specifically the U.S. bishops, are all in agreement that it's not justifiable, that nuclear weapons are an intrinsic threat, are not a a form of military defense that can ever be justified. That is clear. It's clear through through the uh, documentary Heritage and so forth. However, there are individual practicing Catholics who, to greater or lesser degrees, have a public voice. That want to contest that, and I think the most prominent one is the papal biographer George Weigel, who famously, after the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan, described particularly the invasion of Iraq as a form of justifiable military force, and that that stood against what John Paul II himself said and what uh, the bishops themselves said as well—that uh, that was not justifiable, did not meet just war criteria. So he'll use that language of just war, but it's unclear to me how he understands, you know, meeting or not meeting the
0: criteria. Who would have the authority to pronounce whether or not a war is just? Is that something that only the pope can do, or is that something that the bishops can do, or is that something that a rank-and-file Catholic like George Weigel or someone else can say, yes, this is a just war? So could a general who is Catholic— apply the criteria and say, yes, we believe that this is just war acting as a moral theologian and as a professional soldier, or is that something that is relegated to the clergy
1: uh, or particularly the teaching office of the church? Well, it's complicated because this is something that gets disputed and discussed among moral theologians who are by far the most expert in this area and know the tradition. It, it, go, it dates back really to the time of uh, St. Augustine in the 4th century, early 5th century, uh, and we have to remember, too, you know, theology doesn't develop in a vacuum. What's going on at the turn of the fourth century, the end of the fourth century, beginning of the fifth century is the the kind of civilian, uh, the, the marriage between civil leadership, uh, the, the Roman Empire in particular, and Christianity. Uh, and so Augustine was, we might say, forced to or elected to by virtue of his culture and his context, try to come up with, you know, means by which he could evaluate when military force, when violence was justifiable by a state that claimed to be Christian in nature. Um, and so he gave us some pretty good criteria. There are, they're traditionally divided into two uh, sets of criteria. The first is called in Latin, "us ad bellum. And this is an evaluation of, of various kind of needs that, are, that have to be met Prior to the deployment of military force, and and the ad bellum for those in uh, our Latin scholar listeners realize the uh, the preposition and the object here that that this is you know these are the the criteria that determine whether action is justifiable before war begins. You know what things were considered. So, for example, military force or a military you know violence has to have been a last resort. So one of the criteria there ad bellum is to say. You know, were all the other possibilities exhausted—diplomatic possibilities, sanctions, uh, bilateral, you know, discussions, and so forth. You know, that's that's one example of that. The other traditional criteria that gets developed, set of criteria, I should say, that gets developed by Augustine and later Thomas Aquinas, among others, is uh, use in bello, which is how is military action deployed in the war itself. And this is where we run into trouble, for instance, with. United States involvement in World War II, particularly in the Pacific front with the dropping of the atomic bombs, those do not meet the requirements. For instance, the way that civilian casualties uh, are or are not targeted, things that we think of in the civilian realm with regard to war crimes, things analogous to that have to be taken into consideration. What moral theologians in the last 50 years have done, certainly since Vatican II, is add sort of a third umbrella of criteria that's oftentimes referred to as use bellum." which is in what way can we in, uh, kind of analyze the use of military force in light of the consequences and the particular state actor's role after the fact. So this would be, you know, again, we can look to World War II and the so-called nation building that went on in the Middle East and in, in Northern Africa, and frankly, the disasters of, of colonialization that, or colonization that, that happened there. Um, but with regard to Iraq, if we think in very recent times, you know, look what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. Can those military actions, those military engagements on the part of the United States be considered just? And this is precluding, of course, the use of nuclear weapons. And many Catholic moral theologians will say, not really, not when you have a, when you create a situation in which by your military force, by your your violence, you have not only engaged in war, but you've created a perpetual war in which there's no future, there's no clear exit plan. And so the criteria that fall under use post-bellum then becomes primary concern. That's a long-winded way. I'm just giving you the kind of the outline. Who then determines this, which is your question? That's a little unclear. <laughs> you know, in the case of Iraq, we could look to Pope John Paul II, who made very, very clear statements about the unjust action of the invasion of Iraq. And so, you know, I think that seems to be pretty authoritative. Now, the level of authoritative teaching varies, but, you know, I think this can also be something adjudicated on the local level, at the bishops' conference level. So the USCCB has some certain weight in uh, responding to actions of its nation, so the United States and its military actions, I think it's something that uh, the Guild of Theologians, moral theologians, have a responsibility. They participate in magisterium too, right? Ma- magisterium means teaching authority. We discussed that in an earlier episode. It, it, there, there isn't typically a report that comes out. Uh, there's no standard form that I know of, you know, a TPS report or something like that. I don't know if that's helpful.
0: Well, that is. And so what that leaves us with then is when we think about how we are to respond as Catholics to the present situation, which is we have a leader who is democratically elected, and that leader is acting— Well,
1: it depends who you ask.
0: Well, fair enough. Constitutionally elected in this case. Constitutionally elected, but who is acting in the name of the people on our behalf, and yet is acting in a way that Catholics, at least, should recognize as being bellicose and dangerous. That's right. Dangerous not just to putting the military in harm's way, but dangerous to innocence. Those who are non-combatants, as you properly said earlier, dangerous. In fact, even to our allies. If we if we were to see a nuclear exchange on the Korean Peninsula, that would not just be devastating to North Korea. It would have repercussions for South Korea, a major ally of the United States. It would have repercussions for Japan. It would have repercussions for China. I mean, these are moments that have to be taken into consideration. One of the things that is frustrating to me right now as a Catholic believer is I don't see much avenue besides prayer and letter writing to stand in the way of the, the, the continuing cascade of horrors that I see. You know, there, there are friends of mine who are genuinely worried that we're going to see a nuclear exchange in their lifetime. I, I'm not convinced of that yet, but I'm, I'm becoming more worried. Yeah. And and so as a as a Catholic who believes in you know the power of Christ in the world and believes that there is a way beyond violence and war, that to me is troubling that we have a leadership and we have a a situation right now where those of us who would let the better angels prevail seem to have no ability to let our voices be heard.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's especially troubling when since the Second World War. Um, all the military actions that the United States has engaged in have not been technically, from a legal sense, war. And so a lot of power is entrusted to the executive office of of the US government. And that means in this case, President Trump and his appointed officials. So, you know, it's not as simple as calling up your your representative or senator, though we encourage that. It's good to have, uh, you know, they represent you in terms of the legislative branch of the government. And one hopes that things like the checks and balances written into the constitution in the United States found in in the courts as as well as the legislative branch can hold some of this in check but we know from Afghanistan and Iraq for instance a lot can be done we can see, we see what's happened in many other military engagements over the last 30 40 years so um, yeah, we continue to pray. And I think in terms of forming, continuing to form one's conscience, which is the the kind of primary moral guidance that the church teaches, it's evident in Gaudium et Spez and elsewhere, it's important for people to learn a little bit about just war theory. Uh, for, if I can just say one more thing about that without getting too theologically wonky, it's important to note that Paul VI, now blessed Paul VI, John Paul II, Benedict XVI, Pope Francis, as well as the US Bishops Conference and Bishops Conferences all over the world, there's a unanimous voice, uh, complete it's beyond consensus, you know, nuclear weapons do not can never be considered just the use of them. So any kind of armament of of these weapons is inherently is inherently wrong. And so if you don't feel that that's the case, this is an invitation, perhaps, to form one's conscience, to examine that, to to study up a little bit more, to have some conversations about this. And, uh, you know, we certainly encourage you to do that. And we'll
0: invite you to let us know your opinions and your thoughts, both on Twitter and Facebook, but also by emailing us. Uh, We're going to take a break for just a moment. We'll be right back. But thank you so much for listening to The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you.
1: And welcome back to the Francis Effect podcast. This is Dan Horan, and I'm here with David Dolt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Continuing a conversation about the use of force and Catholic moral theology and Catholic teaching in general, we switch gears now to talk about Pope Francis and some recent comments that he's made, some statements about the death penalty and what Catholic teaching says about the state's right to exercise capital punishment, and whether or not doctrine needs to develop to reflect where we stand today. David, what's been going on? Well, I just want to
0: speak personally, first of all, to give full disclosure that I I have a complex approach to this particular topic. For many years, as we've talked about in some other episodes, I was a member of the Religious Society of Friends. I was a, a Quaker, and Quakers are dedicated to kind of radical nonviolence, And so for 15 years, I lived that testimony. And then some factors in my life, I stepped away from Quakerism. And as I became Catholic, I went through a a lot of thought processes and I stepped away from radical pacifism. And so I recognize now in my philosophy towards life and religion, I recognize certain places where I can see legitimate points where the state can exercise force. I'm not an anarchist in that sense. But I still have a lot of that Quaker in me. As I became Catholic, I, I came into the orbit of the teachings of Cardinal Bernadine. And in particular, Cardinal Bernadine was a, a person who talked about life issues being not just about birth issues, but about being the whole of one's life. So the dignity of one who, who doesn't have access to the means of sustaining themselves or the means of adequate housing or the means of adequate health care or the means of a, a death that had dignity. So the Bernadine phrase that gets used a lot is the notion of the seamless garment. Before Pope Francis began speaking about this, my interface with the death penalty in a Catholic context was through that lens of Cardinal Bernadine and the notion of the seamless garment. So that's really where I come into this. So I'm actually surprised that it made news that Pope Francis would be saying that the death penalty was a bad idea because for me as a Catholic, that was always part of my radar and on my horizon.
1: Yeah, and so, I, first of all, I want to echo your um, your support of Cardinal Bernadine's Seamless Garment, also called more technically the Consistent Ethic of Life, which says, and, and Catholic teaching shows this, that if you consider yourself, quote, pro-life, um, you can't limit your objective concern or focus to one particular boutique issue. The most popular one, as it's used in kind of popular parlance, is anti-abortion, that that pro-life means anti-abortion, when in fact in the Catholic teaching it does not. To be pro-life means to be for life at all of its stages. That includes, you know, being against, you know, sometimes it's considered in, in these negative terms, against abortion, against euthanasia, against poverty, against structural injustice like racism, being against capital punishment. Now, the thing is, what's what's striking, you mentioned, you know, since Pope Francis has been talking about this, he's actually been talking about this quite a lot. And he's he's met with some different international advocacy groups that have been calling for the banning of the death penalty a few years back, shortly before Good Friday. He, uh, he talked to one of these groups and basically said what he said recently. What was significant about Pope Francis's reiteration of, of a view that he's expressed since becoming Bishop of Rome, and it's not new to... Pope Francis Benedict XVI has said this, and John Paul II especially. John Paul II said the same thing in Denver here in the United States around the late 90s, is that though the church has traditionally taught that the state reserves the right in order to protect the common good and to protect the people to execute those who have been convicted of of serious crimes or persist in presenting a a threat, a credible threat to society— Nevertheless, in our modern era, this is no, it's no longer justifiable with the kind of technologies that we have, with the sort of prison systems that we have, with all sorts of ways to protect and contain those who pose threats to the rest of society and the common good. To execute somebody for that purpose is, is no longer justifiable. Again, what makes this unique with Pope Francis is that he said this in a talk honoring the 25th anniversary of the promulgation of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Let me just give a little background, David, if I may, about the Catechism, because this is this is a big, and it may be for you as well, sort of a, uh, a pet peeve of mine as a, as a professional theologian and as somebody who trains uh, ministers in the church. People oftentimes think the Catechism is church teaching, and what is in there is what the church teaches, and what is not in there is not. That is not the case. The Catechism, first of all, it is a Catechism rather than the Catechism, so I correct myself on that point. What was promulgated 25 years ago, 1992, which most people are familiar with in this big clunky book with about, you know, 3,000 paragraphs, is designed as a template, as John Paul II said himself in in the introduction in the document, the epistolic exhortation that announces its promulgation, explains that this is a template for local catechisms. And this provides an overview of basic themes in Christian teaching And the name itself, catechism, comes from that tool by which we instruct catechumens, those people who are considering full communion in the church, uh, those who are going through the RCIA process, those who are in religious education programs as children and so forth. This provides kind of a summary. And for the average Catholic Christian, it's a good go-to kind of first glance reference guide. But if you want to find where church teaching is located, you got to look at the footnotes of the Catechism, where it points to ecumenical council texts, to uh, encyclical letters, to the authoritative teaching of the doctors of the church, like St. Augustine and St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure. That's what the church teaches. This is just a summary. So I just want to get that out on the table because when people say, oh, Pope Francis is suggesting that something needs to be changed in the Catechism, is he changing things radically in this? No, it, first of all, the Catechism doesn't hold that kind of place in magisterial teaching tradition. Well, and a, a piece of that,
0: too, is that another thing that you find in the footnotes is scripture. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> well, and, and this discussion so far has put in my mind something that when I was studying in graduate school, I, I took several classes in Talmud, and there's a, there's a passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Where and I don't I can't quote the passage from memory, but but if you if you Google search on stubborn and obstreperous son, so if a stubborn and obstreperous son has uh, a father has the right according to Deuteronomy to sort of take that uh, child before the council, and if the child refuses to mend his ways, the child can be can be stoned to death. That's what the plain sense of Deuteronomy says. So this is a case of Deuteronomy saying capital punishment okay. But if you look at how the rabbis dealt with that in the Talmudic tradition, they looked at that passage and they said, okay, what does it mean to be stubborn and and obstreperous? The son has to be both stubborn and obstreperous. What does that mean? And they, 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 they give very narrow criteria for what that means, and both have to be there together. And then they say, and what does it mean to say it's a son? Well, we're talking about a youth, and that means it has to be between these two ages. So it can't be of any age, but, but a son, a stubborn and obstreperous son, we're talking about someone who is basically between like about 11 and 13, okay? And you have to bring it before the entire council. It can't be a subsection of the council. And both the mother and the father have to bring it. So both the mother and father have to agree that, that this stubborn and obstreperous thing is back. And I can continue the—you get the idea— what we see is that the rabbinic tradition takes this very clear passage that says you can stone your son to death and then says there is such a narrow gate through which you would have to walk in order for that to actually be legally justified that you may as well forget about it and you
1: should just talk to your son that's a great that's a great parallel because that is in fact what the church teaches right now about capital punishment hence cardinal bernardine's inclusion of you know, a Catholic position being for life means being against capital punishment. Case in point. So what Pope Francis is talking about is basically just tweaking the summary form in the catechism as it appears right now. As I mentioned, it's, it's paragraph 2267, where we see that there's an acknowledgement that the church has taught. It says here, actually, that the traditional teaching of the church does not exclude recourse to the death penalty if this is the only possible way of effectively defending human lives against the unjust aggressor, which is, David, your point exactly, with that parallel from Deuteronomy. However, that's, that's one line. The following two paragraphs qualify this and say, if, however, non-lethal means are sufficient to defend and protect people's safety from the aggressor, authority will limit itself to such means. So that's where the bar begins. And then there's this very interesting paragraph that draws on the teaching of John Paul II from his encyclical Evangelium Vitae, today, in fact, as a consequence of the possibilities which the state has for effectively preventing crime by rendering one who has committed an offense incapable of doing harm without definitively taking away from him the possibility of redeeming himself, the cases in which the execution of the offender is an absolute necessity are very rare, if not practically non-existent. And so this this brings us back to, to this point. I mean, I think it's a distinction between in theory and in practice. In theory, right now the church teaches that theoretically it's possible to justify capital punishment, in theory. However, as the catechism summarizes and as John Paul II teaches authoritatively, this is rare and in truth impractical. It's, It's in practice, it does not exist as a reality. Conversely, Moral theologians have argued that in the 21st century with the technology that we have with things like drones and nuclear weapons and this sort of thing, that theoretically there is this possibility of a just war or just military action. But in practice, it's nearly impossible for that to be the case. And so I think what what Pope Francis signaled in talking about this particular theme, this moral issue, this life issue on the anniversary of the promulgation of of this structure, this kind of template for the catechism, is to say that we need to update the catechism to reflect what the church actually teaches in practice. So, you know, there's, what reason is there for us to hold on to this theoretical view when in practice there's, there's no need for it? And if I can do a little uh, shout out, it's not that I predicted this, But I wrote a column in America Magazine in 2015 where I said exactly this. I I laid out, first of all, the catechism is, is not authoritative teaching as such. However, because so many people consult it, I think it needs to be updated to reflect this seamless garment, this consistent ethic of life that Pope Francis is talking about. And I think that's essentially what he's getting at here. So as Catholic Christians, you really cannot be for the death penalty. You can reserve the right to claim that the church teaches right now, in theory, states might find a situation. You can imagine a possibility, sort of like that stoning of a son, if all these criteria are met in which a, a, a convicted offender could be executed. But in practice, that is not justifiable. Well, and there's another
0: context in this that I've been thinking about, and I, I actually want to get your take on. So Pope Francis is the first pope to come really from the global south, and part of the context of the global south in Pope Francis's lifetime is the context of Latin American state violence. And if you think about the 1980s and even into the 1990s, you have Salvadoran death, death squads. You have the murder of, of uh, nuns and brothers religious and priests uh, in, in various places. You have the murder of Archbishop, Archbishop Romero. Archbishop yeah. Romero. And so, to that extent, we see examples from Bergoglio's own lifetime and his own place of being, his own home, of states using lethal force, again, not in a in a legal context, but still in a context to create a regime of terror. And I I can't help but think that that that's part of what might be propelling his energy on wanting to to make this topic there sort of front and center. I I don't, I can't pretend to know what is in his mind or in his conscience, but that it seems to me like that's a natural fit when he, when he looks at states still using a recourse to mortal violence as part of their, their array of, of possible political actions. I think that he just has to have that in the back of his mind, that this is never a good idea and it never works well. And it's never good for the faithful or the innocent.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's true. I'm sure that that plays some sort of role. Although, again, probably the most vocal critic uh, who's been Pope in in the modern era, in the last fifty years at least, has been John Paul II. He comes, of course, from from Eastern Europe and so from Poland. So, I mean, in Benedict XVI, obviously, he falls in the in the same category. You know, it's it's interesting you know, to, to look at, like you said, the context, but I think, honestly, where all three of these men, you know, whether it's Germany or Poland or Argentina, it comes down to what Cardinal Bernadine recognized in the 90s and 80s. And that's, and he's not alone, you know, sometimes when we talk about seamless garment, we, we tie it to Cardinal Bernadine, it becomes like, oh, this one guy. No, no, no. He's He kind of articulated well what's what's deeply profound about our tradition. And that's simply what I mean to say is that I think, honestly, they're just reflecting what it is that we are called to believe. If I can point out something too, you know, in addition to the experience, the lived experience of somebody like Pope Francis in in the global South or in Eastern Europe in the case of John Paul II, go back to the United States to our own context. I mean, it's deeply shameful that the United States is really the only developed, quote unquote, developed nation, you know, certainly leading nation that uh, continues to exercise capital punishment that has the death penalty. I'm just looking through a list. There are 58 countries left in the world that has this. And and a lot of them are not countries that we would really like to be associated with. You know, you know, Cuba, for instance, Guatemala, the United States, Afghanistan, Bahrain, China, Iran, Iraq, um, you know, North Korea, uh, Pakistan, uh, and so on and so forth. We could go through through the list. Vietnam. You know, these are not you know our best friends. You know, noticeably absent Canada, Mexico, France, the United Kingdom, Spain, and so on. Russia actually doesn't have this in there too. I mean, it's a sad day for people who want to, you know, claim that the United States is this great leader and moral leader on the global stage. Well, it's a sad day when Russia is is upsta- upstaging us on this regard. It'll be very interesting to see how
0: Pope Francis's exhortations continue to exert pressure upon the American body politic. I, I'm sure that this is an, a, a topic that we'll come back to again and again. If you've never heard about Cardinal Bernadine or the consistent ethic of life or the seamless garment, and you go to Google and you type that in, you're going to find that we are speaking from one Catholic position and that there will be other Catholics who see this as smelling of sulfur and being an intense distraction from the really important thing for Catholics to do, which is just to be anti-abortion. So just know that if you've never heard of this and you start researching this, that is waiting for you. Certainly research it with, with an open mind and with, with the openness of your conscience. Pray about it, and uh, we hope that uh, we have been in some way a small influence in making you think positively about this as, a, as an important part of the Catholic tradition. With that, let's take a, let's take a break, and we'll be back in, a, in just a moment. Thank you again for listening. This is The Francis Effect. Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically... a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. That's ThingsNotSeenRadio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Dan Horan. Each week on our program, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. We were just talking about the Seamless Garment and Cardinal and We'll put some links on our show notes on our website, francisfxpod.com, and you can go there if you would like to find out more about that previous topic. But now let's turn to another unfortunate topic in the news, Harvey Weinstein and sexual harassment. And the, the way that I'm going to dive into this is that as we're taping this for the last couple of days, a trending hashtag both on Facebook and on Twitter has been the hashtag MeToo. And the context of that has been women who simply put that to indicate that they also have been in some way a victim of sexual harassment or sexual violence at some point in their lives. And I'm the father of a young daughter. She's seven years old. She's already starting to worry about body image. She's already starting to worry about whether she's too thin or not thin enough. In fact, just over the weekend, we were having a conversation and she said, Papa, do you think I'm too thin? And I said, no, sweetie, I think that you're, you're exactly what you need to be. But I'm aware that there are pressures already that are making my daughter, even at seven, aware that other people are looking at her. And having watched the trending of this hashtag over the last few days, I'm aware that oftentimes that gaze and perhaps I'm guilty of this myself as a, as a man in this culture. The gaze that is bestowed upon women, that is put on women, is not always a friendly or a charitable or a nonviolent gaze. It's a gaze that, that contains power. It's a gaze that contains the, even the threat of violence. I'm aware of all that in the context of this situation with Harvey Weinstein and what has been going on for the past couple of weeks with regard to the revelations of just the extent to which this man used his power and his influence to both create situations of sexual violence and sexual exploitation in the entertainment industry.
1: Yeah, it's it's been deeply, deeply disturbing. Not disturbing because Harvey Weinstein is an exception to the rule. I mean, he is, in some ways, his, his actions have been so absolutely egregious and disgusting and repulsive and infuriating. Nevertheless, I, I feel like he's a symbol right now, the current symbol. And we can replace, you know, he's replaced Bill Cosby, he's replaced other people, including, you know, the current president of the United States, who, on a, on a record that was heard many times last summer during the, the 2016 presidential election, uh, admitted to sexually assaulting women. It's deeply disturbing because what we're talking about here is uh, systemic injustice, and it's it's tied to you know you talked a little bit about your experience of your your daughter's coming to an awareness of of the male gaze and of uh, cultural pressures and these sorts of uh, issues of, of being somebody in in society today, which you know a lot of these uh, self conscious things issues that that arise in a self conscious manner are compounded by social media, compounded by the internet, compounded by television and the rest. Nevertheless, the real question here is, is, doesn't pertain really to women as such, but really it's, it's sort of like the, an analog in our conversations that we've had in previous episodes about racism, structural racism, and white privilege. I mean, I think what we see here is a real call to reevaluate male privilege, and you acknowledged a little bit of this a second ago yourself. I think it's sort of like... Um, I don't know, at times I'm at a loss for words because I'm, I'm both extremely angry and I'm also extremely exasperated because I know plenty of women who have been objectified, who have been threatened, who have been assaulted, who have just felt uncomfortable, and that is just not the experience of men by and large. And I don't think that men take enough time to consider what kind of world 51% of, of our community, what our sisters you know, in humanity have to go through because of our brothers, because of us, because of, you know, what has been permissible. I think on college campuses, this isn't just a Hollywood problem, as as has been echoed. And and why I think the the power of the social media campaign of of hashtag Me Too has been significant is because this is something we see rampantly on college campuses. That was in the news in the last couple of years. It's been overshadowed, of course, by the nonsense that's been going on in Washington, D.C. But we see it, of course, in politics. Case in point, Washington, D.C., We see this in uh, church contexts, we see this in other professional settings, we see this in business, we see this in all sorts of, all walks of life, because this is a persistent and and serious concern.
0: Now, there are those who look at the gender dynamics and the gender power relations, and they turn that gaze back on the Catholic Church, and they say, yes, and a major perpetuator of that is something like a big patriarchal institution that says, Women have a role. Men have a role. They're very different roles, and those roles don't overlap. What should we, as Catholics, be thinking about and saying to those who want to say that because we are on the Christian spectrum, sort of the more traditional in terms of our church teaching, that we're part of the problem? Is there something that we should be saying? Should Should we be owning this as part of that?
1: Yeah. Well, I think first of all, we need to identify the we here. We as two men. Yeah. We're part of the problem, and we as Catholics are part of the problem the catholic church is part of the problem. and because as Metzbez declares very clearly, you know, there's no such thing as the church apart from the world. We are in the world. We are the church in the modern world and the men and women who are baptized members of the church who form the body of Christ do not not become christian or catholic's when they go to the workplace or when they go to the family life or they go to their uh, when they go to school or whatever else uh, ride the bus and so forth. so yeah, I mean, I, I think there are very genuine and legitimate concerns that are raised. You know, we talked a few episodes ago about, you know, teaching authority in the church and the role of the theologian. And one of the things that we highlighted was that it's the theologian's responsibility to raise questions, and that in the act of raising questions does not equate dissent as such. And I think this is one of these instances where, you know, it was unitates re in gratio, I think I said that right because I'm saying it by memory, but the the Second Vatican Decree that talks about hierarchy of truth, but also following Nostra Aetate, another Vatican II document talks about the fact that there is truth in other religions and other cultures that the church can learn from, that we don't have all the answers. And so I think the lived experience of of women in the world, of men in the world, um, and what we're learning about both from sociologists and psychologists, from medical professionals, about the underreporting of these kinds of events, the fact that this is, is, is a sin, this is uh, an evil against which should be fought. I think we have a responsibility, as theologians, to ask the question, what has our teaching, what has our teaching about the understanding of the human person, what has our teaching about you know, the understanding of the human person as it pertains to things like complementarity uh, and hierarchical dualism, what kinds of ways does this continue to influence and shape men and women's outlooks on what it means to be a human person and therefore the lived realities of, in particular, women in the modern world?
0: Now, if we look back at comic books and we look back at the rating of movies, so comic books had a rating imposed on them, the Comics Code Authority, and movies had a rating system imposed upon them. That largely came out of pressure from, among others, but specifically the Catholic Church. So there, we can look at times when the Catholic Church was attempting to create a kind of moral authority on entertainment culture. We have stepped away from that in many ways. I, I think that there are still those in the, in the Catholic universe that feel very suspicious of Hollywood and very suspicious of comic books. But on the whole, if the bishops were to suddenly say, we think that movies and the culture of Hollywood, that that's bad— no one would react. There would not be a new rating system. There would not be a new Comics Code Authority. And I
1: don't know that that's even really the point. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, I think you're you know you're, you raise an interesting point, but I think it's much much more deep than that. I yeah. think there are two things you know. Furthermore, that we need to consider. One is the Catholic Church. I mean, it's, it's 15 years ago. We're on the 15th anniversary of the Spotlight report on the cover up of clergy sexual abuse yes. of, of of minors and vulnerable adults. And I think that we need to occupy a place of humility, not of silence, because silence is complicity in some circumstances, case in point, the sex abuse crisis. But humility, that we we don't occupy a higher moral ground just because we're priests, just because we're, you know, regular churchgoers, just because we're bishops. On the contrary, we need to go through the process of an examination of conscience, and that includes a collective examining, too. I think another thing that's important is that, you know— it's not a matter of, of export. I'm not saying that you were suggesting this, but, but it's not about the Catholic Church becomes the morality police, which it already does a pretty good job acting as. Instead, I think it's a matter of how do we become the teachers, which is part of what the baptismal responsibility of being priest, prophet, and king is all about. You know, Men and women are all called to that threefold exercise of Christ's ministry of preaching and teaching. And so those who are liturgical preachers have you? You need to ask yourself: Have you ever preached on, you know, domestic abuse? Have you ever preached on sexual assault? Not in graphic details. Obviously, there, you know, there are children and others there that, you know, you have to do this sensitively, and it's difficult, and it's a difficult topic. But here's the thing: Take the college campus example, for instance. I don't have off the top of my head or before me what the broader statistic is, but on college campuses, the, the reports have shown in recent years that it's as, and this is a conservative estimate: one in five women. Will be sexually assaulted on a college campus. Well, if if we just take that as twenty percent um, and say that this is the experience of women writ large, well, then you're talking about twenty percent of your congregation, female congregation. Not to not to count, you know, those men who also are sexually assaulted. But that's not what this is about here, because it's certainly disproportionately an issue that affects women you know, are you preaching to their experience and acknowledging that and providing resources and connections? Are you availing yourself of ways to be an advocate and to be a resource to connect people to the assistance and the help that they need to encourage people to report, to encourage people to seek the support that they need? So, I think they're really practical matters. I think one of the big issues for men in particular, and so this goes back not just to the collective we of Catholicism, but the we of Dave and Dan, David and Dan, sorry, I just called you Dave. I don't think that's a nickname you use. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. All good. So, All good. Um, but, but to us, for instance, and those who occupy a social location like ours, do we operate with the unspoken bro code of, you know, it's not my business. I don't want to get involved. And, you know, maybe we hear jokes, maybe we see things, maybe we recognize patterns of behavior or instances or illusions that we just let go or we convince ourselves that's not our business or whatever. And so we don't speak up, we don't act. I think that's one of the things that the Harvey Weinstein thing calls us to, because one of the big outrages, and it's analogous, I think, to the Catholic sexual abuse crisis, isn't that the abuse happens sexual abuse happens by clergy by parents by doctors by teachers it's it's it happens everywhere the issue that makes it so egregious is the cover up that goes on and that's really you know beyond the absolutely abhorrent treatment of of women by Harvey Weinstein as such the even more disturbing dimension of this is the accepted silence that has followed it and has protected and enabled it so I think as Catholic Christians, we have to ask ourselves, too. We get together every Sunday and we acknowledge our sins, right, our faults and our failings, and we, we acknowledge what we have done, but we also claim to acknowledge what we have failed to do. And I think one of the things that this Harvey Weinstein sexual assault crisis, and I feel like we can put it that way because it's of such a magnitude, should call us to consider in an, in an examination of conscience is our, our individual and collective failure to do something. One of the things that we're seeing
0: also is that unlike other periods of time in at least the United States history, there is a platform where these voices can speak and they can find solidarity with other voices and they can be heard collectively. So the fact that there is a platform where people can simply say those two words, me too, and have it become part of the collective weight, that to me is fascinating. It's a technological example of the census fidelium, the, the notion of Church teaching changes sometimes from the top down, but also sometimes from the bottom up when the masses come together and say, this is the truth that we are living, that we see, and it is a theological reality for our daily lives. I think that in some ways we should be treating this as a, as a moment of census fidelium. We should also be treating this as what Karl Barth would call a crisis moment, a moment when we, when we see laid bare before us the crater that the bomb has left. And we finally can point to the creator and name it and say, yeah, (laughs) it's there. And I I say this as a person who in my own examinations of conscience, sometimes because I'm such a part of the culture that I grew up in, I don't know when I'm participating in bro culture. It's hard for me sometimes, and I'm just going to own this, to know when my glance has crossed the line. To know when my own playful banter has ranged into into a situation where the other person is suddenly profoundly uncomfortable, as I get older, I am, and as particularly as I have a daughter, I have become much more aware of that. I've, I've tried to be much more sensitive to that, but I'm constantly fearful that I'm that I'm missing something.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think you're not alone. First of all, that doesn't make it okay. <laughs> we all have we all have room to grow. I believe, you know, in the Christian tradition that. Our theological anthropology is inherently about goodness. It's a matter of living and acting in such a way that we enable the flourishing of human goodness and, and actions, policies, interactions that support that. And, and what this you know, Harvey Weinstein thing uncovers for us is one example among sadly far too many is that, that women are still not treated as equal – and the word equality sometimes becomes difficult. I, I think maybe that's not even the best phrase because people are like, "Well, what does that mean? Should they do X?" Y? I, I think a better way to put it is they're not being treated as fully human, which is a very Christian, very Catholic way to put it, and it's a stark way to kind of put it into relief. And so your examination of conscience should continue, mine as well. Um, all of those uh, who are men, in particular, are called to that examination. But I think it's it's a matter too going back to our Christian teaching of. You know, I'm reminded there there are times in the synoptic gospels where Jesus says a lot of people are gonna say, Lord, Lord, but they're gonna be surprised <laughs> at the end times because you talk the talk, but you don't do a very good job of walking the walk. And so I think this is a time for us to call ourselves to account as Christians to say, yeah, are there ways in which the way we express our tradition aids and abets this dehumanization of of women in particular? We could talk about other ways that Christianity is complicit or the practice of Christianity is complicit in the dehumanization of, of populations. But the other thing I would say too is, you know, kind of a call to arms or my fellow men for me and you and, and for those like us occupy a social location like ours, which is we need to educate ourselves. That means listening to our sisters. That means reading things. You know, it's it's very similar to what we talked about from my vantage point with regards to, to racism, which is You know, read feminist theory, studies on rape culture and of abuse and of cover up, read about the male gaze, read about the way that women are objectified and so on and so forth. It's not an easy task. It's not it's not always pleasant work, but it's it's our responsibility.
0: And one place that that can start, in addition to all the excellent examples that Dan just gave, is the simple act of listening and not re-narrating what you hear. Just to let someone have their experience and to sit with that experience and not feel the need to say, oh, well, probably it was this or to change it in any way. But just to simply to say, you know, what I hear you saying is that this happened and this happened and this happened. And tell me more about that. I mean that's, that's a vulnerable position that a lot of times I don't think men are comfortable occupying, the position of simply listening and not saying what they think it means and not fixing it. But that's, that's an essential practice that I think culturally we have to start doing because so many people are speaking. This is such a universal experience. The Me Too hashtag is showing us that it is. We need to learn to listen, to shut up, and to allow that to speak and to not try and contain it.
1: Yeah, and to bring it back to the Weinstein example, I mean this is what you know, all the women who are speaking up now, they have not been silent. <laughs> Men have just not listened. And I think that's that's an important thing, as you rightly point out. I, I might just take this opportunity, too, just to share with our listeners something that we've been talking about, and that's our hope to bring other voices into this podcast. You know, David and I, we acknowledge our social location, and and we're not, you know, hiding from it or something, but two educated white men, Catholics, talking about the tradition. This is the core of our program. However, we are very eager and excited about inviting others um to come and speak with us who represent other perspectives, other social locations, other expertise. So I just want to say on behalf of us, you know, stay tuned for that because I can see too that there's a way in which our talking about some of these subjects as white men talking about racism and uh, sexual assault against women, people are like, what is this? Is this like the mansplain hour? And we, we really are trying to be aware of that. So stay tuned, more to come.
0: And with that, let's bring this conversation to a close. Dan, as always,
1: it's wonderful to sit with you. Thank you for taking the time. And still with your spirit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's always a pleasure for me, too. I, I, this, I always look forward to talking with you, David. Thank you. <laughs>
0: The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center we also want to give a shout-out to our friends at the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. woo Salt and Light. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis and the letters F and X and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening.